Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are in the book of Proverbs, chapter 19. We only made it about halfway through chapter 19 last week. We're picking up tonight in verse 11. Technically, we made it all the way through verse 9. Verse 10 is sort of a uh, singular thought that doesn't really reflect the theme that we're about to build on. So we'll look at verse 10 as sort of a uh, separate thought. But starting at verse 11, the theme for the evening is essentially going to be anger and forgiveness and the various aspects of that. As we've been reading through the Proverbs, we have seen several times that Solomon has told us that anger causes you to do all kinds of damage to people. Anger is not only detrimental to other people, but anger is ultimately detrimental to you. And that's why he says things like, before you answer, take the time to think about what you're going to say. Don't just fly off. Tonight he's going to contrast anger and forgiveness in a couple of different ways. And we're also going to see that those same themes are picked up in the New Testament by Jesus himself. And so this idea of anger doing damage and forgiveness doing great good and being a great benefit not only to the person you're forgiving, but it does a great deal of good to you to let go of things. That theme is Old Testament and New Testament. So verse 10 by itself is just sort of Solomon looking at the world once again and observing and just saying that certain things just have order. There are just ways that things ought to be. For instance, luxury is not fitting for a fool. He's saying that a person who is not God-fearing, a person who is angry all the time, a person who is completely self-centered, a, com a person who is willing to damage other people, that sort of person, it's not appropriate to see them living the life of luxury. That people who live in castles or people who live in the life of luxury ought to at least be wise enough to know not to let that damage them, not to let that harm them. That, by the way, is a theme that you see again throughout the Bible, the idea that uh, sometimes riches can do as much damage as poverty. Even Jesus talked about it. Even Paul talked about it. Paul talked about uh, how he had been rich and he had been poor, that he knew how to be full. He knew how to suffer lack. And yet he said, in all these things, I have learned to be content. So contentment is not based in having plenty and being full. Contentment is in the knowledge of God and his word. And regardless of the circumstances of life, he has learned to be content with his circumstances. I think it's because he understands that those circumstances came to him through an absolutely sovereign decision by God. Therefore, he could find contentment. So then, if someone is foolish 
and is living in luxury, that is not appropriate. Because, as I just said, their foolishness isn't going to know how to handle riches or handle luxury. But as we continue on through this chapter, you're also going to see Solomon say quite a few things about somebody who is just lazy. And that laziness ultimately leads to hunger. And so that sort of fool is never going to be found living in luxury because, number one, he couldn't achieve it. He couldn't accomplish it. And number two, if he were living in luxury, it would probably damage him terribly. So luxury is not fitting for a fool, and much less, it's not fitting for a slave to rule over princes, mighty men. People who have achieved that position of honor should not be ruled over by slaves. Okay, well, that is just Solomon explaining the condition of the world and what is right and what is appropriate. And the rest of the chapter really never gets back to that theme. So that's verse 10, and we'll let it stand on its own. But verse 11 starts to get into the difference between anger and forgiveness. A man's discretion, that means a man who knows how to think, who is wise, one who thinks about what he's doing and what he's going through, one who actually gives some thought to his own behavior. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. Okay, well, what does that tell you if you look at it the opposite way? It means that a man who is quick to anger has no discretion. A man who is quick to anger hasn't taken the time to think about his actions. Think about how it's damaging the other person, how it's damaging himself. A thinking man, a man of not just wisdom, but a man who is able to think through the repercussions of his own decisions, is someone who is going to be slow to anger. And it is to his glory. In other words, it is a benefit to him and to other people when he overlooks transgressions. If you care about somebody, knowing that everybody across the board sins, they always transgress, and occasionally they're going to transgress against you, and occasionally that's going to hurt you. And you have two options at that point. You can either fly off the handle and get angry at them and escalate the whole situation until ultimately you may even lose a friend or a loved one, or... You can be slow to anger and forgive them for their transgression against you. Obviously, Solomon is saying that that is the better way to behave. That idea of forgiving in the New Testament is based in be forgiving because you yourself have been forgiven. Here's the big picture. If you recognize how often you yourself have transgressed against God, is there anybody here who would like to say that you've kept the law perfectly? Well, John says that that's the very essence of what sin is. It's transgressing the law. None of us have even kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. And that sort of transgression against God is constant on our part, and yet God has forgiven us. That becomes the basis for us forgiving other people. So much so that Jesus even put it into his model prayer and said, when you pray, pray like this. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
So God has forgiven you, therefore also forgive. So a man, a thinking man, a wise man, a man of discretion, is then slow to anger, and it's to his glory if he will just overlook a transgression. We read in the Bible that love covers a multitude of sins. And that's true. I'm sure that every single day, okay, let's go with every other day, at least once a week, <laughs> Micah does something that, that causes April to want to bite his head off. So far, so good? You agreed way wow. too quick. Yeah. But why does she forgive him? Why does she overlook it? Why are they still married? Why are they still living together? Why doesn't she come in here and say, that's it, I can't take him anymore? Why? Because she loves him. And her love for, I'm assuming that, but her, <laughs> but her love for him overlooks those transgressions. Love, recognizing that you've been forgiven by the love of God that forgives you your transgressions against him, your love for other people then makes you slow to anger toward those people and willing to overlook their transgressions. Jesus even talked about this. Turn to Matthew 5 for just a moment. Matthew 5, and we will start around verse 43. This is Jesus talking about forgiving people, forgiving your neighbor. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But then Jesus went beyond that and said, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You can't begin to pray for those who are harming you, persecuting you, unless you forgive them first. They've persecuted you. They've harmed you. They've done you some damage. The natural tendency at that point is to lash out at them, to make them pay for what they've already done to you. And yet Jesus says, rather than hate your enemy, love your enemies and pray for them. That's a massive amount of forgiveness. But again, as I said at the beginning, your model is God loving you and forgiving you. While we were yet enemies, the Bible says, God nevertheless sacrificed his son for you while we were enemies. So therefore, if we as enemies of God could be forgiven by God for all our trespasses against God, all our rebellions against God, then we who have been forgiven ought to reflect that kind of forgiveness by forgiving those who persecute us. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Why? Verse 45, in order that you may be Sons of your father who is in heaven. So Jesus himself drew that equation. If you're going to be like God, if you're going to reflect God, if you're going to be children of God, then you're going to act like God in forgiving your enemies. After all, you were an enemy when he forgave you. In order that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, because he causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain to the righteous and to the unrighteous. Mm -hmm. 
So God is being kind. God is being benevolent, even to those who are present tense, his enemies, those that he refers to as evil, those that he refers to as unrighteous. Nevertheless, those unrighteous evil people still live on a planet where there is food, where there is sunlight. They are provided for on a day-to-day basis by a benevolent God who is being good to his enemies. Therefore, you, if you want to be called the children of God, you also be good, be kind to your enemies. Pray for them. Don't use them spitefully. Verse 46, then Jesus explains it as, for if you love those who love you, big deal. Okay, that's not the exact wording that he used. But he says, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? If I come to you and say, you know, my children, when they were young, every day, virtually every day, at least most days, on a fairly regular basis, I fed them. You're not going to go, well, you need to be rewarded. Instead, you're going to say, well, you should. You're their father. You should look after them. You should love them. They love you. You love them. Why are you going to be rewarded for doing good to them? If you love those who love you, then what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? Jesus went right for some of the most hated people among the Jews, the tax collectors that were collecting tax on behalf of Rome from their fellow citizens. They were widely hated, and he said, even tax gatherers, even the tax collectors love the people who love them. There's nothing more attractive to you than somebody who loves you. So then you don't get a reward for responding good to them. If you're going to get a reward, if you're going to be like your father, then you don't have to do what the tax collectors or the Gentiles do. If you greet your brothers only, What do you do more than others? Don't the Gentiles do the same thing? In other words, you're just doing what comes natural to you. So there's no reward in that. But verse 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That is the Greek word for complete If you're going to be complete and say that God is your father, then you are going to reflect the gracious attitude of your father. And rather than being hateful to your enemies, you're going to pray for your enemies. You're going to love your enemies. You're going to be beneficial to your enemies. And even as you give them a glass of cold water, you're ultimately pouring hot coals on their head. But that sort of judgment is up to God. It's not up to you. Therefore, you who named the name of God, who named the name of Christ, you go out and reflect the character and the nature of God and be kind, be benevolent to those people who don't deserve it. If you're only good to the people who are good to you, if you only love the people who love you, then you're no better than a tax collector or an unbeliever or an unrighteous man. That's what a Gentile was at the time. So there's no benefit to you. So then back to Solomon He says, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to then overlook transgressions. Look over at verse 19 of this same chapter. He's still talking about anger. 
And he says, a man of great anger shall bear the penalty. Solomon says there's a penalty that comes with anger. And we all know that's true. If you were just going to try to name some of the penalties of anger, it goes all the way from if you're angry at a cop, you're going to end up in a box with bars with murderers and rapists, all the way down to it's not good for you. If you're going around being angry all the time, it causes you all kinds of health problems and can cause you ulcers, give you all kinds of stomach troubles. It can make your head hurt. If you're angry all the time and you never reach the point of contentment, it's doing a great deal of damage to you to say nothing of the damage and the penalty that you're doing to other people. As you're unloading your anger on other people, you're just going around damaging people and making people not want to be around you. So there are tremendous penalties for anger. So he says the man of great anger is going to bear the penalty of that anger. And then he says, if you rescue him, in other words, if a man of great anger has a just penalty coming to him, and you don't allow that penalty to get to him, you get in the way. Certainly, I think that Solomon's talking from the standpoint of a judge here, saying if a man of great anger is due some kind of penalty by the law, and you forgive him for it, if you rescue him from it, because he's a man of great anger, you're only going to have to do it again. Now, in a little while, we're going to start talking about discipline and the benefits of discipline. Here, Solomon is obviously saying that there is a discipline that goes with your anger. There are penalties that go with your anger. And if you don't suffer those penalties... You're just going to be angry again and again and again because there's been no penalty to pay. Hey, I got away with it last time. I can get away with it this time. So then verse 12, he's still talking about anger. But this time he's talking about the king who is a judge. After all, if the judge gets angry. If the king gets angry, well, then he knows how to exercise his anger in ways that will really hurt you. The king's wrath is like a roaring lion. Nobody else can exercise their anger quite the way that a king like Solomon could. If you came in and did something that got his ire up, he knew how to make you suffer the penalty, even to the point of imprisonment or to the point of death. Before we look at the second half of that verse, go over to chapter 20 for just a moment. Verse 2, we probably won't get into chapter 20 tonight, but go over there. Chapter 20, verse 2, the terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Okay, so those two verses say the king's wrath, the king's anger is like a roaring lion and the terror of a king which means what he can mete out, what he can cause to come into your life. Whether that's, like I said, whether that's your beheading, whether that's your imprisonment, whether that's any kind of punishment, he has the ability to bring that kind of terror down on you. And now it's not just like a roaring lion, it's a growling, angry lion. You don't want to make the king angry. He who provokes him, The one who provokes the king to anger forfeits his own life. 
So if you get in front of a king, says Solomon, and then you make the king angry, what you're doing really is forfeiting yourself. When you're dead, when you're in prison, when you're paying the penalty, he's still king. You did no damage to him. He's moving on to the next case. But you've really, really damaged yourself because you've brought upon yourself the just penalty of making the king angry. So again, anger and forgiveness, anger and forgiveness. Back in verse 12, notice that he contrasts the king's anger with the king's favor, the king's graciousness, his forgiveness. His favor, his kindness to you is like dew on the grass. Okay, the contrast is between a roaring lion who's going to devour you Versus walking out in the morning and seeing a gentle dew on the grass. It's a huge contrast and very poetic. His favor, his grace, his kindness to you is obviously what you want. This is what Solomon, by setting up this contrast, is saying. When you come before the king, don't work to make the king angry because then you're going to pay the penalty and you're going to forfeit your own life. But come and plead to the king for his kindness, for his favor, and then you're going to find all this goodness at his hand. Now, I do think that Solomon is speaking pretty much first person here since he's talking about the king's wrath and the king's favor. But I also think we can apply that to our relationship with God. There are many ways in the Bible that we can inspire the wrath of God through rebellion, through presumption, through doing harm to his people. Remember that Jesus, when uh, Paul was persecuting Christians, Jesus stopped him on the Damascus road and said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So there are many ways that you can get up the ire of God. And when you do that, you're forfeiting your own life. The same way that a minute ago I said, when you forfeited your own life, the king is still on the throne. He's still king. You didn't do any harm to him. Same deal with God. He's still God after he's done punishing you. You've done him no harm. He's still sovereign. He's still God. The only damage that was done was the damage that you did to yourself by bringing about the anger of God. And if the anger of a king is like a roaring lion, what is the wrath of God like? The wrath of God who can cast you into outer darkness. The wrath of God who can send you to the place where the worm never sleeps. Where the fire's never quenched. You don't want to make that God angry. You want to make sure that the second half of the verse is true for you. The favor of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God is like sweet condensation coming down out of the clouds and covering the grass so that the grass can grow and stay green and is watered fresh every morning. That, that's what you want from God. So I think Solomon is saying more than just, don't make me angry. I think we can apply that to God, who is the great eternal king. After Solomon died, after every king on the planet died, God was still in heaven. He is still the ultimate king. And his wrath still results 
in the condemnation of the people who brought about his ire and his wrath. But his favor, his kindness, his grace is like sweet dew on the grass. Last week we looked at verse 13. And it says, a foolish son is a destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. And I said to you that that is Solomon describing the relationship that he has with a child, as well as the relationship with a wife. And in either case, it's the father or the husband who is the one who is paying the price, who is paying the penalty. If it's a foolish son... He becomes an embarrassment to his father. He's a destruction to the reputation of his father, to the way of his father. And the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. But before you say, gosh, that was kind of cruel, Solomon, the very next verse says, house and wealth are an inheritance from your fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. We looked at that last week, and I pointed out that the contrast is the stuff you have in this lifetime, whatever wealth you have, whatever property you have, whatever homes that you may have, those are all things that can be inherited. Those are all things that you can hand down to the next generation or that may have been handed down to you, but there is no way that you can inherit a clear-thinking, prudent, intelligent wife. Okay, so verse 15 Now we're going to start talking about laziness versus being willing to accept discipline. Because discipline will teach you how to be forthright in your activities, in your work, in the things that you put your hand to. You're not going to know that without discipline. If you are undisciplined, you're just going to remain lazy. You're just going to remain Well, here, laziness casts into a deep sleep and an idle man will suffer hunger. Well, those are both truisms. First off, laziness casts into a deep sleep. He's not just saying if you're lazy, you're going to fall asleep and take a nap. But I think he's saying more than that. He's saying that it becomes an attitude. It becomes overwhelming. That is your way of life. Your laziness defines who you are and how you act. And a lazy man, then, is compared to an idle man. Idle means not working, not doing anything, not improving his own lot in life. And as a consequence, he's going to suffer hunger. You may recall that in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, that Paul also put that rule in front of the church. He said, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Now, in Paul's case, he wasn't just stating a truism. He was saying, this is how it ought to be within the church. Within the church, if a man is not willing to take care of his own family, if he's not willing to go to work and provide for them, he's worse than an infidel. He's worse than an unbeliever. And if a man isn't willing to get up and do the work, then he should not even be allowed to eat. Solomon is saying that if you're just idle and if you're just lazy then you're not doing the necessary steps every day to provide food for yourself. The way that we live here in modern America is so unlike the way that the world has operated for most of human history. 
most of human history, when you got up every day, job one was find food. You didn't have the sort of refrigeration you have today. You didn't have fast food. You didn't have grocery stores. You got up every day and you began with, what am I going to eat? Find food, job one. A man who doesn't get up and do the work of finding food, a man who's just going to be idle and lazy, when it comes time to eat, he's not going to have any food because he wasn't willing to put in the work that it takes to go get something to eat. So laziness then casts into a deep sleep and an idle man will suffer hunger. Look at verse 24 of this same chapter. Verse 24 refers to the sluggard, which, by the way, is just a colorful word that I actually enjoy. But it also means the lazy man, the person who just won't get up and do the things that need to be done. This is kind of comical here, the way that Solomon describes him. He says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. So you've got food in the middle of the table. He's willing to put his hand into the dish. And because he's so lazy, he will not even bring it back to his mouth. So in other words, he's willing, if something is there in front of him, he's willing to participate. He's willing to to say, yes, if I can have that for free, yeah, I'll take that. But if there's work involved, if there's effort involved, if he has to pick it up and put it back in his own mouth, well, then he's not willing to do that work. I think that would be the ultimate in takeout food. (laughs) Somebody who would not only show up at your door with food, but then feed you. So you don't even have to get up. Well, that's what he's describing, but he's describing more than just the comedic picture of a man who's willing to put his hand into the bowl, but not willing to put the food then into his mouth. He's saying he'll take something if there's no effort involved. But as soon as there's effort, as soon as there's work involved, He won't do the work that it takes to even feed himself. So it's the same idea as what we just read, that a lazy man is an idle man who is going to suffer hunger. And oddly enough, his hunger, which ought to motivate him to become busier, to become more active, to go find food, isn't apparently enough motivation He's just going to instead take a nap because of his laziness. He's just going to go into deep sleep and suffer the hunger rather than solve it. Verse 16, we did look at briefly last week. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. In the contrast, the phrase careless of his ways is contrasted with keeps the commandment. The commandment then is God's word. God had already laid out commandments. Obviously, Solomon is living under the old covenant, and his entire religious life up until that point is basically the writings of Moses. Some of 1 and 2 Samuel, maybe a little bit about his father David there, but the kings and the chronicles and all the acts of Solomon and stuff, that stuff is still in the creation process. So what he's got primarily is the writing of Moses. He's got the Pentateuch, 
which concentrates on the law and the ordinances and the commandments of God. He says, if you keep those commandments, that is so good for you that you're actually keeping your own soul. So the commandments of God, the instruction of God, the discipline of God, is not separate from you and contrary to you. The instruction of God is a way for you to keep your own soul, to protect yourself, to make sure that the ire, the wrath of God, is not against you. But if you're careless in your ways, which means you don't worry about the things of God, you don't think about the things of God, you don't think about whether or not you're keeping the instruction of God, the commands of God, none of that affects you in any way, then you are careless in your ways, and the end result is the contrast of keeping your soul. The contrast is, you'll die. So keeping your soul has eternal ramifications to it. Keeping your soul means that the end result of following after God is going to be God's grace, God's mercy to you, God bringing you into his ultimate glory. The opposite of that is if you're careless in this lifetime, you're careless of God's ways, you're careless with the ways you walk, you're just going to die and die eternally, ultimately. Verse 17. Now we're talking again about Anger, forgiveness, being harsh to people, being gracious to people. One of the contrasts that Solomon brings up very consistently is the difference between rich men and the attitude of rich men, especially when they're looking down on poor men or poor people. But there is a way that rich people rather than being dismissive of poor people, there is a way that they, in their ability, in their wealth, can actually be kind, be gracious to poor people, and in doing that, they are essentially keeping their own soul. But here's the way that Solomon puts it. He who is gracious to a poor man, he who is kind, he who is beneficial to a poor man, he lends or he gives to God. He gives to the Lord. He gives to Yahweh. So ultimately, if you have the ability, if you have the capacity to help a poor person, if you have the ability to put some clothes on their back or give them some food, that is not you doing it solely to them, nor is it any kind of cost to you, really, because what you're doing is giving back to the Lord what the Lord has already given you to begin with. It all belongs to the Lord. He has loaned it to you for your benefit in this lifetime. If he has given to you what belongs to him, then when you see somebody who has nothing, you ought to give to them some of what the Lord has given you because it wasn't yours in the first place. The Lord gave it to you. And when you give it to the poor person, you're actually giving it back to the Lord. That is one of the essential ingredients of proper giving theology all the way through the Bible that God has given you everything you have. There's nothing that you have, including your own mind, 
There's nothing that you have, none of the clothes on your back, the money that you have. There's nothing that you have, the house you live in or the car you drive or the Nintendo. Or, there's just nothing that you have that when you die, you don't leave behind. Which means none of it is technically yours and all of it belongs to God. Which is why David would write that the cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord. Everything is God's. Therefore, God gives you things in this lifetime. Therefore, when you give to God, whether that is giving to somebody who is poor and in that way giving to God, whether you bring money and give it to the church for the advancement of the gospel, anytime you are giving to the Lord, all you're doing is giving back to the Lord what he's already given you. It began, the giving began with God. Here, I'll put it this way. God, who was under no obligation, decided to give his son. He sacrificed his son. His son gave his life. So, so far, you've got God giving. You've got the son giving. The son who gave his life explained to his apostles that once he died, once he resurrected again, that God was going to give them the Holy Spirit that was promised. So God gave the Son, God gave the Spirit, the Son gave his life, the Spirit comes and the Spirit gives us faith and gives us repentance, gives us the knowledge of God, leads us in the ways of all wisdom. So God gives. He began the giving. He gave his son. The son gives. He gives his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit takes up inhabitants in you. It is impossible for me to believe that once God gave, the son gave, the spirit gave, the spirit gets to you, and that's where the giving ends. Mm. I can't believe that because it is a giving God who inspired the giving. It is a giving son who gave his life so that you could be saved. It is a giving Holy Spirit who gave you the knowledge of your repentance and your own faith and the knowledge of God's word. And therefore, all of that giving ought to inspire in you the desire to give. It's just in you. It's part of you. So then, verse 17 he who is gracious, is kind, is giving to a poor man, actually is giving, lends to the Lord. And he, the Lord, will repay him, the giver, for his good deed. That's the whole of giving theology. It's expanded on throughout the Bible. But in the end, it's all about God gave to you. Therefore, you give, Jesus speaking, says, God, who sees you giving in secret, will reward you openly. Same thing Solomon said. That God, who recognizes that you are giving back to him through the way that you are kind and gracious to people who don't have as much as you have, you are giving back to the Lord. And since it is the Lord who gave it to you in the first place, he also has the ability to continue taking care of you and giving to you and providing for you as you provide for those who don't have as much as you do. Got it? Got it. That's the basic biblical giving theology wrapped up in a single proverb. 
It's brilliant. He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he, the Lord, will repay him for his good deed. Look down at verse 22 for just a moment. What is desirable in a man is his kindness, that graciousness, that ability to be benevolent to other people. That's the desirable characteristic of a human being. Not his anger, not his wrath, not his willingness to to not listen to you and talk over you, not his willingness to say me first and all me and only me all the time. What is desirable to see in a man is that he's kind. And the second half of that verse says, and it's better to be a poor man than to be a liar. So here's the very high level that Solomon has placed lying at. Of course, it is such a high level that, as we've said in previous weeks, it even makes the top ten on God's list. The Ten Commandments include, don't be a false witness, which is lying. And so it is better than to be a poor man, hoping for, begging for, counting on the benevolence of rich men and God to provide for you. It's better to be poor than to be a liar. But what's really desirable in a man is his kindness. All right, so let's go back up to verse 18. How are you going to get over this self-centeredness? How are you going to get over this willingness to pour out your own wrath or to close the bowels of kindness against a poor man? How are you going to get over all those very self-centered tendencies? Well, this is how. Discipline. Verse 18. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. First off, discipline your son while there is hope means discipline him while he's still under your hand. While you still have the ability to show him the proper way to go, at some point he's going to become old enough that he can continue in his rebellion or continue in his laziness. But while he's under your roof, while he's under your direct influence, make sure that you discipline him so that he knows the right way to go. Discipline him while there is still hope. And do not desire his death, I think, is the continuation of the exact same thought. What Solomon is saying here is, if you don't discipline him, if you leave him to his laziness and to his rebellion, you're essentially just hoping for his death. Because you haven't taught him how to walk circumspectly. You haven't taught him the knowledge of God that is the beginning of wisdom. You haven't taught him how to control his tongue, how to be slow to anger. You haven't taught him how to be kind to people who don't have as much as he has. In other words, you're just setting him up for death. That's what we've already seen here, that a man who is constantly angry is just going to end up bringing about his own death. So discipline your son while there's still hope in the discipline that you can mete out to him and don't desire his death, which is what lacking discipline results in. Look at verse 20. Listen to counsel. That means listen to advice. When people are advising you and telling you about the errors of your way, listen to their counsel 
and accept discipline. Solomon sees discipline, proper discipline, appropriate discipline, as the answer to all of the foolishness that he's been describing. All of the anger, all of the self-willfulness, all of the looking down on other people, all the lying, all the constantly talking without listening, all of that can be solved by listening to good counsel and paying attention to discipline. Why? So that you may be wise the rest of your days. Let's read that one backwards. If you don't pay attention to discipline, you're not going to be wise the rest of your days. You're going to be a fool the rest of your days because you didn't listen to counsel and accept discipline when it was in front of you. By the way, I believe, I am convinced, that it takes somebody to really care about you to be willing to discipline you. Here, I'll put it this way. I have disciplined my son when he was younger. I've disciplined my son pretty consistently, I would say. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah, okay. And yet, there are millions, billions of other children on the planet who I never disciplined. Why? They're not yours. They're not mine. I used to use this phrase with my son and with my daughter. I used to say, I'm willing to be your enemy short term in order to discipline you appropriately. And when I discipline you, you're going to hate me for it but I'm willing to be your enemy to teach you this lesson. Well, the reason that I was willing to discipline my son was not just because he was my son, but because I loved him, I was invested in him, I cared about him, and it was my job to make sure that he didn't end up on the wrong side of society or the wrong side of the police or ultimately the wrong side of God. So I was willing to discipline him ultimately for his own good. Fortunately, both of my kids were willing to listen to discipline. They were willing to grow from discipline. In fact, I think they just assumed that it was how life works. It's just part of daily life. Oh, here comes dad. This looks like discipline. But they understood that I did it because I loved them, I cared about them, and I didn't want them to grow up to be foolish and lazy. Yeah. Question on the word discipline. I don't know what the original word is, but can it be uh, defined as uh, teaching or uh, the discipline, for example, of learning a science or a language or playing an instrument? That is one way that the word discipline can be used, especially when it's like being a disciple. Mm -hmm. But this is a word that means correction because... Just learning to, let's say, play the piano is not going to lead to you being wise or foolish. Unless you're a really foolish piano player, in which case, please don't. Uh, The discipline of how to conduct yourself. Discipline of how to conduct yourself is, is totally fair. Yeah. But it means to be corrected, to be rebuked, to be reproved. All those things that Paul said the word of God is good for. Look at verse 25, along the same lines. If someone is a scoffer, that means somebody who rejects discipline, someone who scoffs at discipline, someone who scoffs at the word of God or the wisdom of God, 
He says, strike a scoffer. And the naive may become shrewd. In other words, if someone's just being naive and scoffing and not understanding the true word of God or the true correction of God, he says, if you strike them, if you discipline them, they might become shrewd. They might come to their senses. They might recognize that they don't want to get struck anymore. They don't want to be corrected anymore. There's a possibility that by correcting them, you're going to bring them to understanding. But reprove someone who has understanding, and he'll end up gaining knowledge. So somebody who already has the understanding, somebody who already has the wisdom of God, who cares about the things of God and the, and the word of God and the wisdom of God, if you correct him, he gains understanding. He actually is willing to accept that kind of discipline. So accepting discipline in Solomon's mind is equatable with being wise in the things of God, understanding the things of God. If you truly, genuinely understand the things of God, then you're going to understand that discipline and correction is ultimately for your own good, but then take that all the way out to God. God, like a loving father, is going to discipline you. We read that in the book of Hebrews, that God chastises every son that he receives, chastens every son that he receives, scourges every son that he receives, that he is going to correct you, he's going to mete out discipline to you, but he's doing it because he's your loving father, and you can react to that discipline one of two ways. You can either say, well, if that's the way you're going to be, I'm not going to let you be my God anymore, or you can recognize that that is God in love correcting you for your own good and you will accept that chastisement. You will accept that discipline and you will learn something from it. There are a few things that are sadder in life. And I've seen it, especially over the last coming up 19 years that I've been doing this public ministry thing. There is few things that are sadder than to watch God discipline somebody and they learn nothing from it. And they end up shaking their fist at God and stomping away. God disciplines the same way that a loving father disciplines. He disciplines for your good, for your correction, because ultimately he's in the enterprise of saving your soul. Strike a scoffer and the naive might become shrewd. But if you reprove one who has understanding, he gains knowledge. He understands it. He accepts the discipline. So back at verse 18, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. Verse 19, we've already read, a man of great anger shall bear the penalty. And if you rescue him, you're only going to have to do it again. Listen to counsel, accept discipline that you may be wise the whole rest of your days. Many are the plans in a man's heart. That's where we began last week. Many are the plans of a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. That's about as sovereign a verse as you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. As I said last week, every one of us, have a willfulness. Every one of us have a certain conceit where we think that what we want to do is what ought to be done, simply by virtue of the fact that that's what we want. 
That's what we've concocted. That's what we've come up with. So we've decided that's what ought to happen. And then God interrupts our plans and his intention, his plans actually come to pass instead of our plans. Now, if we have accepted correction and discipline from him, if we have learned about him and his nature and his character from his word, if that is true of us, then when he implements his plans instead of our plans, we're able to recognize that his plans are actually much better than our plans and that our plans were probably going to do us a great deal of damage. It's a good thing that God didn't let you do what you wanted to do. In fact, most of the time, it would be better for God not to let us do what we want to do. Because after all, our minds and our hearts are coming from a sinful place, are coming from a completely egocentric place, are coming from a place of pride and arrogance and presumption. And even though God is willing to correct us and forgive us and be kind and gracious to us, nevertheless, we still are struggling with our sinful flesh every day. And if our sinful flesh and our sinful mind got to rule the roost, if our sinful brain got to do whatever it wanted, anytime it wanted, you're right, Marilyn, to be shaking your head. If, if we got to do whatever we wanted to do, whenever we wanted to do it, can you imagine how quickly we would destroy ourselves? It is the grace of God, it is the kindness of God that he intercedes, that he changes our way, our walk, our life, that he corrects us, that he disciplines us, that he chastens us so that we know the way that we ought to walk, so that it will ultimately result in the saving of our souls, because God who knows everything, who declares the end from the beginning, knows what his intention and his plan for us is before we even begin to walk in it. And so it is good for us to end up walking in the way that he has determined for us, because our way is just no darn good. Verse 22, we've already looked at it. What is desirable in a man is his kindness, and it is better to be a poor man than a liar. The beginning of wisdom is what? What is the beginning of wisdom? What is the theme all the way through the Proverbs? The beginning of wisdom is? Fear of the Lord. Verse 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. That's the very beginning of wisdom. That's why it's the beginning of wisdom. That's why it's the fundamental. That's why it's the groundwork of all wisdom, the fear of the Lord. If you have the fear, the reverence, the understanding of the kind of God you're dealing with, and you're willing to recognize his sovereignty over every part of your life, and you're willing to accept discipline and correction at his hand, if you have that kind of fear of the Lord that leads to life, not just life here and now, but to life eternal. So that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. I love the poetic nature of that, but I also love the very practical nature of that. If you go to bed, you're worn out, you're really, really tired, your head hits the pillow, and you can't sleep, what's usually the cause for your not sleeping? Why are you awake? It's because you're troubled. Your mind won't settle down. You're worried about things. You're scared of something. You're worried about tomorrow. I heard a psychologist years ago say, nobody ever went crazy worrying about today. Because you pretty much can see your way through today. You know what you're wearing today. You know what you're going to eat today. 
but you will drive yourself batty worrying about tomorrow. What's going to happen tomorrow? What about tomorrow? What about next week? A month from now, how am I going to make my bills? A year from now, how am I going to survive? If you let that stuff keep you awake all night, then you're never going to be able to rest well because you're scared of what's coming all the time. Mm -hmm. But if you recognize that the God you have reverence for is the same God who has tomorrow in his hand, the same God that got you through today, that got you through yesterday, that got you through last week, last month, last year, is the same God that's going to get you through tomorrow and next week and all of that. Remember that Jesus said, you don't need to take thought for tomorrow. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? He says, the things of tomorrow have enough trouble for themselves. Tomorrow will bring its own problems with itself. Just worry about today because today he's taking care of you. You can see your way clear through today. So day by day, while it is today, God is taking care of you. God is providing for you. And therefore, when you get to the end of that day and your head hits the pillow, you ought to be able to sleep comfortably, untouched by evil, Because you recognize that the same God who got you through today protected you from evil. Which is why Jesus would say in his model prayer, when you pray, say, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from poneros, the evil one. Not just evil as a concept, evil as a theory, but deliver us from the very presence and embodiment of evil if you are truly untouched by evil then you're going to have a sound mind and you're going to have a comforted mind because you know God is taking care of you therefore you can sleep satisfied and I like it when the Bible says get some sleep (laughs) that's good biblical advice 24 we've already looked at the sluggard buries his hand in the dish And will not even bring it back to his mouth. Verse 25, we've looked at strike a scoffer. And the naive may become shrewd, but reprove one who has understanding, and he will gain knowledge. Verse 26 has to do with a foolish son who doesn't listen to the discipline of his father. He who assaults his father and drives his mother away is a shameful and a disgraceful Son, I don't think that requires a whole lot of commentary. It's just a truism. A person who grows up to ultimately drive his mother and his father away is being foolish. Because after all, one of the big ten is honor your father and mother. So therefore, by Dishonoring your father and mother by assaulting your father, by driving away your mother, you're not ultimately just doing them damage. You're doing damage to God and then ultimately to yourself, to your own soul, because you are in rebellion not only against your parents, your God-given parents, but you're in rebellion against God himself. Verse 27. If you cease listening to discipline... You will stray from the words of knowledge. Here we are back to the discipline thing. If you don't listen, if you cease listening, and then he says, my son, because he's instructing those who are under his direct tutelage or discipline. Cease listening, my son, to discipline, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. What are the words of knowledge? 
Well, the Proverbs that he's putting out here, the words of God that we find in this Bible, the words that you hear when somebody cares about you enough to correct and discipline you, when somebody reproaches you out of the word of God, when somebody brings you back to the realization of your own rebellion against God, those are all good and productive words of knowledge. But, <laughs> but if you ignore them, even when people care enough about you to tell you them, he says, if you cease listening to the words of discipline, then you're going to stray away from the words of knowledge. And the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. A rascally witness. Gosh, I like the word rascally. rascally. I mean, the NASB just went with rascally there. A rascally witness makes a mockery of justice. What that means is somebody who's not willing to tell the truth. He's a witness in a court of law, but he's kind of he's kind of weaselly. There's another adjective. He, he's not really telling the whole truth, sort of protecting the other priest, not being forthcoming like he says that he's going to. He's he's a little bit too clever for his own good. He's a rascally witness, and that makes a mockery of justice because there's no way to decide what the guilty party ought to actually pay or whether an innocent party is being unduly charged. There's no way to know that if the witnesses are not forthcoming with what they actually know. So a rascally witness makes a mockery of justice and the mouth of the wicked spreads iniquity. There we are back to the talking thing. How often now has Solomon brought that up over and over and over? Gosh, we've just got to be careful with our mouth, with our lips, with our tongues, with the things that we say. And if we're being busy talking all the time, we're not just spreading rumors, we're not just spreading harm to people, we're not just damaging people and cutting them down, but ultimately what we're spreading is sin. The iniquity that is within us is coming out through our mouths. And so you can see why Solomon would say so repeatedly, it's better to just be quiet rather than spreading your iniquitous thoughts and iniquitous ways. Last verse for the evening, verse 29. He talked a moment ago about scoffers, those who won't believe, those who make fun of the way of truth. Well, then judgments are prepared for scoffers. I think he's talking about as a judge that judgments are prepared for scoffers, especially those who scoff against the rules or the laws of a king. But this can also be expanded all the way out to God. Judgments are indeed prepared for scoffers. And blows are prepared for the backs of fools. If you're foolish, we've seen it time and time again. If you're foolish, you're going to go awry. You're going to go astray of the society in which you live. And ultimately, you're going to have to endure the punishment of that. And that's what he's referring to as the blows, as the striking. Sometimes those strikings, sometimes those blows might perhaps lead a scoffer to change his ways. Maybe, might. But if you pay attention to discipline, if somebody is wise and you discipline them, you reprove them, you correct them, they accept it most willingly because they recognize that genuine instruction in righteousness comes from God himself. And that's the end of that chapter. Are there any questions? Well, all right then. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.